we are at a point where we can afford morality and we can afford principle. And we're not buying either. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And today I have a special episode, a discussion with Steve Factor. Now, before we get into it, Steve was a guest in the end of 2021. You can listen to his story and his episode, which was episode 345. We titled it, Take the Risk and Pursue Your Dreams. Steve, why don't you introduce yourself and maybe also give us a little you know, tidbits as to what you've been doing over the last couple of years. And then we are going to have a fun discussion about what's in your head. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you the brief summary. I was in corporate for a long time. I was executive at MasterCard, American Express, Citigroup. I did mostly innovation, developing new products and services, strategy. And I left corporate when I wrote my book, Conovation, and started down this path of creating content and putting my ideas out there. Did a lot of public speaking. And my love affair with content ebbs and flows just because it's, you know, as you know, it's a grind, but you know, my business is idea factory and I have mostly been doing innovation, but then as the pandemic started, and then as the war in Ukraine started, I started doing more futurism work, which is essentially, you know, scenario planning, you know, so if you're going to invest in the future, if you're going to, I'm not talking about a one-year investment, you don't need me to help you invest your marketing dollars, but if you're going to invest in three to seven-year opportunities, or maybe 10, even in some cases, you need to know, well, what's the future going to look like, or at least have an idea of what that might be. So, you know, choosing those investments, finding new growth opportunities, and really just understanding what those scenarios are is a lot of the work that I've been doing. And it's been for a variety of clients ranging from technology companies, consumer products, financial services, and a little bit of government. You know, and so I've been looking at a lot of mega trends and a lot of things that are both interesting and worrisome. And I think you've probably caught some of my musings on Twitter because Twitter's where all my malformed thoughts go before they turn into something. So some of them are half-baked. Some of them are just, you know, rough ideas. Some of them are to be discarded and probably I should be embarrassed and seek therapy. But the idea is to just put it out there. And then, you know, what I do is I have these long threads that develop over time, which is not really the proper way to use Twitter, but I don't care because it's really for me. If <laughs> you're just looking looking at my notepad, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then I turn them into something. And that's where I turn them into podcast episodes or it becomes work for clients or, you know, just kind of trends that I, that I find interesting or relevant or impactful. So let's talk about the future because I, I produce a, a quarterly global investment strategy report and I bring it out to a small group of fund managers in Thailand. And I think generally they're kind of surprised with some of the conclusions that I come up with. And when I was thinking about it, I was thinking that it's not really that difficult to think about the future, right? You have to just, you have to walk through, if this happens, then that would happen, then that could happen, then that could happen. And there's a lot, lot of just simple logical connecting the dots that it seems like 
people either don't want to do or that, you know, so you can see like an avalanche forming, but for some reason, some people won't see it. And I'm just curious, maybe let's just start about how should someone think about the future? Well, so what you said is important, but I guess I would break it down into two, well, three, three parts. The first part is filtering out what is signal and what is noise. And that's not an easy thing to do. So sometimes the analogy I use for myself is I think of myself as a clam where I have to sift through a bunch of filthy ocean water to create a pearl, you know, and I have to decide which of these things are actually going to help me form the pearl. And so that is the first part. And then it's not easy, but it's also not impossible. The second thing is really what you're talking about, which is deciding, okay, well, what's the trajectory of these things, right? And once you've identified which ones are legitimate and signal versus noise, where are they going or where could they possibly go? You're never going to know for sure. But again, that's where you assign probabilities and say, hey, this is you know likely to happen or, or more likely than something else. So you make some decisions as to weights on one versus the other. And the third part of it is the strategic and analytical part where you're saying, okay, well, now that I have an idea of where these things might go and what this future might look like, well, what do I want to do and how do I want want to act in that future, whether you're an individual who's trying to make personal decisions about, you know, the education of their kids or their investments or whatever else you're deciding in life, or whether it's something you're doing for your business and saying, okay, well, this is where I want to place my bets. So it's all the same, but, but those are the three kind of major steps, I would say, or components. So to, to summarize that, sort out the signal from the noise then try to identify the trajectory, maybe even put some weights on what particular outcomes are. And then you talked about the strategic or analytical part where you say, what do I want? You know, how do I want to act or what do I want in that future? Now, the first part of it is interesting because I, I study with a man named Dr. Deming. And Dr. Deming wrote a great book called Out of the Crisis. And he was kind of the father of the, the quality movement. And one of the very first things that he told us in management is that majority of what we are reacting to is, is noise. Mm, yeah. And a typical manager runs day to day, running around, reacting to noise. And instead they're making the mistake of realizing that you can statistically define the output of a system. It comes out, let's say that in my coffee factory, as an example, we have 100 gram bags of coffee. Well, some are gonna be 101 and some are gonna be 99 and some are gonna be, there's a distribution. You're never gonna get everyone perfectly 100.00000. But once you start to track that, you understand what that system is producing. Once you understand what that system is producing, then all of a sudden it doesn't really make sense to tell the workers, work harder you start to realize that the output is determined by, for instance, the weighing and the dosing machine that we have, the vibration, you know, and many other things. And so all of a sudden you realize in management, what he was teaching was that it's almost all noise. And most people are just jumping around and saying, you know, they're jumping around to this noise. And I would say that if I look at the news media and media in general, the whole objective is to say every single bit 
of noise is truly a signal. So how do you sort yeah. that? How, how does somebody that's bombarded with information sort that? Yeah. Yeah. So before I answer your question, I think, so I, I'm, I'm going to answer it, but there's another equal danger, which is deafness. So there's the hearing everything that doesn't, it may not be relevant or important or whatever. And then there's complete deafness and there's a <laughs> huge percentage. I would say the vast majority are deaf. And so they're hearing and understanding what the signal or the noise is. So they're complete pawns in whatever the people that are active that are responding to either signal or noise are going to determine. So there's, and is, there's that, is that deafness huge, by choice or they're just oblivious? There, I think there's a combination of there's some people that are institutionalized and really believe that whatever system has worked for them is working and they don't really have an incentive to look any deeper. And so that's fine, you know, so they're puttering along. And then when something surprising hits, you know, this happened when Trump got elected, like, oh, how did that happen? You know, we, we thought this was supposed to go this a certain way because that's the way the system was, was designed. And so, you know, so they're surprised by a lot of things and because they're not paying attention, they're not sifting through any of that stuff. Same thing with Brexit, same thing with a whole bunch, you know, the BLM stuff, all, all the, you know, January 6th, there are all things that are visible if you're looking, but if you're not looking, that's fine. There's reasons why you're not looking. You could just be be, you know, listen, a busy parent. And I understand why you don't have time to mm. be on Twitter and, and see, you know, what the hell is going on in the Middle East. So there are legitimate reasons not to be informed, but also you will be a, a victim is too strong a word, but you will be swept up by whatever forces that come from those people that are active and whether they're active because they see the right things or the wrong things is irrelevant. They're active. So, and it's a very small percentage. It could be 5%, 10% of the people that are actually engaged. And those are the people who are motivated for a variety of reasons, personal, financial, emotional, whatever it is to be engaged. And so those are the ones driving the conversations. Those are the ones driving the future for good or bad. And so to go back to your question, which is, can you refresh my memory now? That yeah, I've so been... the point is now, okay, you've made a, a good argument about people that are deaf, but let's say, how do we not get distracted by the media that tells us that every bit of noise is a signal? Every bit of noise is significant when we know that it's not. I think this is where there's a lot of forces at play that cause us to concentrate on certain things because media is almost too broad a term now because which media are we talking about? Are we talking about reading the New York Times, which has its narratives or any kind of you know newspaper that has an editorial position or even YouTube, whose algorithm makes certain decisions and flags certain videos and demonetizes and deprioritizes. And that's silent but deadly because you don't know exactly what happened that caused you to either see or not see a particular video. So in other words, we're being moved sometimes slightly, sometimes dramatically in a number of positions. And unfortunately, we've been put into a position of a very low trust situation where we now 
have to become our own news gathering organization. Most people are not prepared to do this, not do it well, because even the stuff that's in the public domain is partial information. You will never know, like you could have an opinion on, you know, military funding, or you could have a position on, you know, the various wars that are being fought, but you're getting such a tiny fraction of information in the public sphere. Cause you know, the people who have the information aren't authorized to talk and that stuff is just not publicly available. So you can have notions of what is right and what is wrong, but you can come to some very wrong conclusions dealing with partial information. So I'm always conscious of that. That's why to me, it's always about balancing those probabilities. And unfortunately, most people between the unavailability of information, the narratives, and the silent manipulation through algorithms are not going to be well-equipped, even if they had strong analytical skills, which I debate You know what percentage of the population even has that. So if you had the time and the skill, you still may not come to the right conclusions for structural reasons beyond your control. Which, you know, it's an interesting point because the inevitability of what you're describing is that we've lost free will, but maybe we never had it in the sense that we, because I, I just wrote down some things when you were talking and I thought the first thing that I've I've learned, I, I have a class I teach ethics and finance for finance people, but you know, for young people, what I'd say in the class, I say every single thing that comes to your mind is propaganda. Whether that's a billboard, whether that's a news article, whether that's your mom or dad or anybody, everybody is pushing their propaganda. And when I was a young person, I got on my bicycle in little Hudson, Ohio, and I rode downtown and I saw one billboard, you know, in the whole day. And I didn't see any social media. I didn't, I wasn't bombarded, but nowadays, you know, you're bombarded. So number one, everything is propaganda. So you have to understand that there's a, there's something behind everything. The other thing that I've, I've learned and, you know, there's great research on it is that First in mind is what matters. Whatever someone's, whatever they get down first in their mind is what they tend to believe. And then the third thing, so everything's propaganda, first in mind. And then the next thing is people don't change their mind. So I set up a debate in my class with, you know, 50 to 100 students. And I say, come on to the side that you agree on this particular debate topic. And they go on the side. And then we have a really strong debate in class with many, I say, now whoever wants to change sides, go ahead and do that now based upon what you've learned. And nobody changed sides. It just, they just won't change. And in fact, I've asked them and they said, yeah, I think that side's not, you know, it got some good points, but I- I'm going to stay here. <laughs> and you just realize everything's propaganda. Be the first in mind, which I think the CIA is the master at that of getting the first message in mind as to what how to interpret this, and then people don't change their mind. What are your thoughts on these things? So I I agree with a a lot of what you said, but I'm going to reframe it because I think there's actually positive ways to look at what you just said, because propaganda is a a negative characterization, and, and for good reason, because a lot of entities or people are pushing their interests, and their interests may not always be your interests or in your best interest. So But I I will say it this way. I think personal narratives are important. The story that you tell yourself of how the world works, what matters to you, that is the story that will motivate you to do something. 
Is it a good something or is it a bad something? Will it propel you forward to be a better person, to help others, to do things that are moral and just, or will it propel you to do things that are negative and destructive or, or just profiteering or whatever else that, you know, may not be as moral or just maybe amoral. So I think in the past, religion served that purpose, you know, and, and so it gave us a story, whether you, you know, had whatever your religion was, and it gave you a delivery mechanism, a vessel for delivering morality, for delivering hope, for delivering values, for delivering all of these things that in theory should propel you forward in a positive way. Some people bastardized it. Some people turned it into, you know, war persecutions and inquisitions or whatever, intifadas. So even that can be perverted as a story. So the question is, what are the stories that we want to have versus the stories others want us to have? So I think that what you're talking about is the imposition of other people's stories into our lives and then our response to them. And will we make those part of our story? Or do we have the ability to decide what our story should be and decide how you know positive and, and what that vision should be? And, and it's, it's much harder. It's gotten much harder because when we believed religion, and I'm not saying religion is ideal or, or the best or whatever else, but it gave that to you prepackaged. It was this set of beliefs and stories and whatever, and this is your mythos. I'm not even sure I'm saying that properly, but that's your mythology. Yeah. And so in the absence of that mythology, we are now scrambling. We are scrambling to find alternatives. And that's why people are grasping on to a lot of the things that you're categorizing rightly as propaganda. And it's humans want to believe. They need to believe. And I think that is the war that is going on right now. The war is, it's not just a culture war. It's a war for what people will believe and what their truths will be. Because, you know, and, and that is way more powerful than any technology. You know, we talk about AI. AI will be swayed one way or another by the people who code it, by the people who use it, by the people who legislate it. And all of those are byproducts of, of culture. And so that's my response to stories. Mm. I, I could pause, but I was going to go to first yeah. in mind as well. Actually, it's probably good for us to shift now into, now that we've got some background of, of thinking structures and the like, there's so many interesting topics these days. And so let's shift now to talk about your opinions about different things. I'm going to just throw out five different things, and then you pick any of those or any others that are interesting. The first thing is that what I've observed in America as an outsider, you know, I haven't lived in America in 31 years. Wow. I lived in Thailand and I understand Thailand very well, but is that it seems like there's been a war on religion that's been going on for a long time. And I was kind of maybe brought up in the middle of that where I was taught kind of to say, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not particularly religious, I'm spiritual. And, you know, and now I can see that that's gone a long way. And then the second one is there seems to have been a war on family. And particularly as I see in Thailand where family still has a lot, you know, in Asia, family still has a huge value. So there's religion, there's family that seems interesting to me. The other thing is that I had a guy 
Steve come to talk to me in Bangkok and he came from outside of Thailand. I won't say where, but his father was a station chief for the CIA in the Vietnam war era, in particular in Laos. And this guy wore the guilt of his father. I mean, I could just feel it as he talked about the massacres and the assassinations that the CIA was involved in, in those mm. days. And I asked him, you know, what do you think is the CIA's objective in this world? And he said, chaos. So that brings me to another one. It's just, if you can have chaos, you really disturb everything. So first I thought about religion. Second, I mentioned about family. The third one is chaos. Another one I wrote down was, you know, you, you've been talking about something that I think Dr. Robert Epstein has been doing when he's been trying to understand the messages that social media and particularly Google, how they're trying to influence elections and how, how they can influence elections. Yeah. So that brings me to the fourth one, which is, can we even have a fair election? You know, Thailand's pretty simple. On election day, it's one day, you go to your district, you bring your ID, you sign up that you came, you put your vote in, and then they count them up. But I'm not just talking about the actual physical election, but I'm talking about the things that are coming up. And then the last thing, so religion, family, chaos, fair election. And the last thing is, this is one I'm, I'm most fascinated with, is the U.S. going into a civil war? Out of all of those, what, where would you start? Well, actually, I'm going to give you one thing that ties all of them together. And then I'll try to address, I'll start with the Civil War one and I'll work my way towards family, religion, some of those other things. Yep. So there is a foundational thing that's happening now, which I think you're observing here, which as, as an outsider and also someone who's, you know, understands America, but maybe hasn't been steeped in, in our culture wars and all this other stuff. What's happening now, and I think Trump had a lot to do with it, but we have unearthed a lot. I think social media played a big part and Trump played a big part, which is our institutions have been exposed. You mentioned the CIA. You know, CIA has a propaganda arm. So I, I did a thing on my podcast a while back on Ukraine, and I talked about the Kiev Independent. I'm like, oh, how did this keep popping up in my social media feed? Where did this come from? So I was like, oh, it's Kiev and it's independent. Must be good. Then I looked into it. It was literally funded by the CIA. And it's they admitted this is not a conspiracy theory. You could you could look it up. There's an arm of the CIA that openly does propaganda in foreign countries. And really, there is no such thing as doing just propaganda in foreign countries, because if you're doing it in English, it's going to pop back up in your social media feeds. So the underlying sort of thing that you're observing with all of these is we have opened a portal to seeing the underbelly, the very ugly underbelly of all of these institutions that we took for granted as thinking that they're noble, as thinking that, you know, reporters are really looking for the truth, that the American government is looking out for our best interest, that elections are fair, that these companies are, are trying to act in the best interest of the countries they operate in. So what you're seeing and what we're all seeing and really unable to cope with because we're not built to process the foundational distrust in everything. 
Can you imagine that? Like we went from trusting everything to trusting nothing. Mm -hmm. And that opens a door to conspiracy. That opens, and you know what? Some things are literally conspiracy. Like you look at the FDA and how the, the food pyramid got constructed. It was all industry. And the fact that they hid the how horrible sugar is for you, that is all, you know, industry money that did that. And the fact that the NAACP calls people who are against weight loss drugs racist because the drug companies donated money to the NAACP to do it. Like, these are all facts. These are not even, these aren't even remotely conspiratorial. You could look it up. You can follow all of the, the money. And so when you start looking at these NGOs and these government entities and the media, and you're like, oh my God. So you you have two, almost two binary choices. Do I sort of tumble deep into the abyss with all of these things and try to make sense of it and drive myself crazy, which is essentially what Twitter or X is? Or do I completely disassociate and live sort of a an oblivious life? And there's an argument for that, and maybe even a stronger one than going into the abyss. So let me go into the abyss with you. Uh, uh, before so, you do that, so let's just yeah, clarify. Yeah. So what you're saying is that maybe it was a case that the institutions were never noble. It's just that we didn't we didn't see what was happening behind the scenes. I we remember didn't see, we didn't know, we didn't have a reason to know because things were working out fine. But when fissures are exposed, then people start finding stuff underneath the cushions. Yeah. And, and, and what we're finding is ugly. Yeah. One of the examples of that is my best friend who got into the JFK rabbit hole. And uh, he's a very smart guy, and he read many books about the assassination of John F. Kennedy Jr. And basically, what he what he said is that he clearly thought the CIA was involved. And I was like, "That's crazy! Come on, come on! That's crazy! It can't be." Well, I said, "Look, I'm an analyst. Why don't you tell me the best book to read on the topic, and then I'll make my own judgment." And I read that book and I went back to him. I said, I think you're right. And so then I went to my father and I was just talking to him and he was, you know, 80 at the time. And I started going down this rabbit hole. And then I just realized like, he doesn't want to go down that rabbit hole. There's no point in going down that rabbit hole for him. It destroys everything that he believed. And one of the things that he said, which is always hard to reckon with, he said, how could it be? Because, you know, if that happened, you know, somebody would talk. Well, okay, in the books and other things, they have different people that have talked, but they've their voices have been pushed down as best that can be done. But then I watched Daniel Ellsberg, the documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in, in the US or in the world. And mm -hmm. it was a great one. But what he was saying is that a thousand people had access to the Pentagon Papers and not one of them spoke. And so his point is, yeah, that when people's, you know, pay is, is on the line or something, you know, they're not going to speak. So, yeah, I think that this idea that we've exposed something now that has shaken the foundations of, let's say my dad in that case, I'm sorry, at 80, I do not need my foundation shaken. So I'm not right. going to go into that. And I backed off and I thought just, you know, but that's my kind of my story related to that. So continue on. Yeah. And we individually are not equipped to deal with this level of distrust. And, you know, so to address your civil war point, 
when you shake the foundations the way they've been shaken and you expose the things that have been exposed, you create a lot of splintering. You create a lot of turmoil. You create a lot of, you know, essentially gangs, you know, because people, you know, you've got your Antifa, you've got your far rights, you've got your, you know, like all these different groups, you've got your, you know, groups that have been conveniently created by politicians, which also have, you know, LGBTQ, like they keep adding new letters because they're trying to create a voting block so they, they can, you know, get votes. So all of this stuff, even Hispanic was a creative thing because the idea that that someone from Cuba and someone from Guatemala and someone who's here, you know, 20 years or a third generation is going to have the same opinion is insanity. But it's convenient for political clustering and it's ignorant, it's stupid, it's cynical, and yet they do it anyway. So so what we've done is we've created all of these clusters and pitted them against each other. And very few people are stepping back from it and saying, well, why are we being manipulated in these ways? And so this goes back to what you mentioned earlier, which is the propaganda. It's everywhere. And we are now for the first time seeing it and don't know what to do with it. And we're at each other's throats. And so will that create a civil war? I I hope not, but I think we're at risk the longer we go without reestablishing what Americanism is and what those values should be and establishing not only what the obligations of the state is to the individual, but what is the individual's obligation to the state and to the society in which they operate. And so, you know, like you look at libertarians and, you know, I have my libertarian streak in me, you know, for free speech and for certain economic things, but as a total ideology, it's incomplete and naive, as naive as socialism, as naive as everything else, because it's a very complicated world. And so a lot of libertarians are like, hey, you know, government taxation is theft. You know, let's break up the government. Let's break up into smaller states. You know, so th there's, there's a naivete there where if you're living in a world where China exists and Russia exists and Iran exists and these state actors exist, do you really want to weaken the nation? Do you really want to deplete its resources? So that doesn't mean that what we do is right or we're doing it at the right scale, but it also doesn't mean that you have a solution that is even remotely viable. And so, so I think there is this sort of separatist streak, but I, I think that what's really important is to somehow redefine Americanism. Mm -hmm. And until that happens, we're not going to be able to reestablish trust in institutions. We're not going to be able to put the right kinds of people in there because the people that are going in are partisans. You know, they belong to a gang that has been formed, whatever that is, and with, with an ideology in hand. And that ideology will, you know, permeate whatever it is that they do. And, and realistically, the systems are bigger than they are. So you put in a new CIA director, I'm not even sure how much that they have the ability to change about all of the, you know, shady things that are being done in our name around the world. You know, I was reading the book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And I don't know if you read it, but, yes. uh, you know, even if 50% of it is true, it is dark. It is dark what we do and how we use debt to manipulate other nations and how we try to mold and shape the world. We did it overtly with hard power in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria. 
And we do it with soft power or economic power and influence with these Latin American countries and, and others and, and maybe in Asia. Yeah, Confessions of an Economic Hitman is a great book, and I'd highly recommend people read it. Having been you know, in Thailand during the 1997 crisis when the IMF came in and all of that, and then seeing what's happened around the region, I would say, yeah, it's more than 50% you know, true in yeah. my, in my perspective, you know, one the of the details things, were all there. The details yeah. were all there and believable. That doesn't mean they're all true, but like yeah. I said, even at 50%, it would be frightening. Yeah. I, I want to get into this civil war. And one of the things that I want to do and part of when I'm writing strategy, what I'd like to do is just say, it's going to happen. If it's going to happen, how is it going to happen? So I've spent hours. I happen to have read maybe 50 or 60 books on the US Civil War in you know the 1860s. And so I've spent a lot of time looking at maps and thinking about it. And it's clear, it's not gonna be a geographical war because you've got, you know, let's say the coasts of America are one group of people. And then the middle of America is another group of people. So it's a little bit harder to think of it happening on a geographical basis. But one of the differences about America than almost any other country out there is that if you go to a country like Thailand, as an example, or many other countries, and you go to a province, there's no way that a provincial government or governor is going to stand up to the central government and say, we refuse to do that. They are under the control of the central government. But the United States is a union of states, and therefore the states have a huge amount of power. And what I'm starting to think about is if civil war happens, the way I think it's going to happen is this. Some states are going to say, we don't want this influx of immigration. And therefore, our conclusion is we're going to ask immigrants that have recently come to the state to exit the state. And of course, the pendulum swings, right? And when the pendulum swings, that's what I'm afraid of is it's going to swing pretty hard in that way. And of course, there's plenty of other states that will take those people and have built themselves around the idea of that they would take. But then that's going to cause a constitutional crisis, a standoff between federal government and state government. And that's kind of my first bit of thinking on it. But I'm just curious, if a civil war was to happen in the US, how would it happen? Well, so I think what one thing we're experiencing now is kind of a you could make an argument is a prelude to what you just described, which is post COVID and, you know, with, with all these people working from home and so on, and the dissatisfaction with how different states were handling, you know, lockdowns and all that, you see a massive migration from certain states to other states. So you see California losing population. I think the number was 750,000 over the last two years and a net increase in Texas and in Florida and some other states, you know, I think Tennessee and, and some others have, have had large influxes. So if you were to follow with your logic in terms of civil war, you could view this as mobilization, right? Because now people are starting to cluster around like-minded others who are saying, we believe something different than the place we came from. 
And so, you know, so is California going to have one position, Texas another, and it's going to be so irreconcilable? Do they go to war or is it a war of attrition? So I actually think that's the more likely scenario where the lines that are drawn between states are much more like walls than they are, you know, sketched lines on a map. And so you talked about immigration. I think that's definitely a wedge issue. Another one was abortion, which we just saw, you know, now that abortion has been sort of sent back to the states, you're going to have very different laws in each of these places. And some people are going to, you know, that's a make or break issue for them and others don't care. And then there are some that are like, yeah, let's ban it. So whatever you are, and if you have the capacity to move, then you will cluster towards the people that are like-minded. And to my point earlier, it doesn't matter that most people believe because it's the active people that count. Because they're the ones that determine policy. It's the squeaky wheels that are going to get the oil and they're going to get the policies that they want. And so that's what we're going to see. And I think maybe it's a good thing because if it does happen and it is kind of a a war of attrition, I don't think it's going to be like hand-to-hand combat. You know, like, yeah, there might be things that happen in cities, but what it could do is thin the federal layer. And I think that would be a good thing. Because Mm -hmm. the federal government has gotten so big and so powerful that it is a magnet for corruption. It's a magnet for influence. It's a look at you know, Nancy Pelosi's worth $150 million. All these other, (laughs) you know, congressmen and senators are trading stocks. There's a there's a guy I follow on Twitter. I think it's called it's called the Pelosi stock tracker, but they track not just her, they track all the trades and they even have an app now where you could track all the trades of Congress. So they're literally just insider trading and it's completely legal. So these are the people that are out there representing us. And when you have that this federal, let's talk about that federal level because I think or layer that you talked about because Not everybody understands that because in most countries, the states or the provinces were created by the federal government. But in America, the federal government was created by the states. Right. And so there is a natural conflict of interests that the Constitution was meant to protect the rights of the states. Ultimately, I think that's where people get confused, for instance, when they look at the electoral process and the electoral college. Sometimes they forget, they think that it's a democracy when in fact it's a union of states. Yeah, And that's where I think the ultimate power to oppose the federal government is there because there's a second way that civil war could happen. And that is cities versus, you know, urban versus rural. Yeah. But there's the power, the power dynamic, you know, ultimately it's the the power of the state relative to the federal government that seems to be the place where the challenge could happen, not from, you know, rural, you know, you could say rural populations is where food is and maybe, you know, cities don't get that, but you know, that's very hard to coordinate and all that. So I don't, I don't think it's going to happen city to rural, but I don't know. No, I I don't see it happening. First of all, rural and suburban people just demographically are older. They have families. It's a long drive to riot. You know, like, it's like they want know, to be like, left alone. You, yeah, exactly. They want to be left alone. So that's why they tend to lean more right because it's the environment is more one of uh, self reliance or at least the perception of it. 
And the people in cities are more statists because they need public transportation. They need cops. They need all this other stuff. That's why they're all against guns. They're all against, you know, they, they, they rely on the state for everything, for public transportation, for safety, for pretty much, you know, every public service. So I think that doesn't go away. That doesn't go away. It's just a question of, so I almost want to park this idea of civil war yep. and go a little bit deeper as to why we're feeling this way. So there, there Which are, I think, I think we deep, can, let's end the civil yeah. war discussion. We've got to had a good, you know, point. So let's yeah. move on. Yep. There is a very scary ideological thing that's happening. And I, you know, a lot of people talk about wokeness and, you know, they, it's all the same intersectionality, mm. critical race theory, all, all these things that have permeated our educational institutions. And I don't know if you've seen it, it's gone around for, for years now. I, I posted it back in 2017. There's an interview with a guy named Yuri Bezmenov. I don't know if you saw it. Yes. But yeah, so he is a former KGB propagandist who defected to, I think it was to Canada, not to the US, but he did this famous interview, now famous, in 1984, talking about how the Soviet Union never imagined that it would ever defeat America in combat. That was never even on the table. But what they knew that they could do is fracture us from within. And the entire premise was to infiltrate with their ideology into the American scholastic system, a re-education in communist socialist theory and propagated throughout our population. Now, whether what's happening now was a product of self-selection, you know, where people or conspiracy, where it's exactly as he said, or self-selection where the kind of person who was a hippie in the 60s and protested just happened to, you know, put on a corduroy blazer with elbow pads and become a professor. You know, so that's either way you end up in the same place. It attracts a certain kind of person. And I would say it's a scary kind of person who never had to subject their ideas to the marketplace, to the harshness of the world. Because if you just move from the back of the classroom to the front of the classroom to teaching, you can have the wildest ideas, the most idealistic and utopian notions, and they will never be challenged. And so the DSA and all of these groups that are active on campus are essentially teaching right think. And that right think is this you know, victim oppressor ideology that is now being grafted onto everything. It's being grafted onto corporations. It's being grafted onto the Israel-Palestine conflict. And so just the other day, I'll just give you, an, even in the most minute ways, we've been reprogrammed. I went to a friend's house and she, you know, she was very concerned. She's Jewish. She's very concerned about what's going on in Israel. And in the process of our conversation, she referred to her own child as presents as white. And it only occurred to me after the fact how insane that is. And it's not her fault, Like, but this is the stew in which her children go to school and the, the mothers that she associates with are dealing with. And those are the, and, and what is happening is the way this ideology works, 
is it weaponizes empathy. And women happen to be much more empathetic and wired for empathy than than men are, that motherly instinct and so on. And what is happening is because 85% of our teachers are female and because, you know, and even you look at who's tearing down the posters of people who were kidnapped by Hamas, it's mostly women. Mm. And so this ideology is brutal but it's brutality cloaked in injustice and in kindness so it's the appearance of of kindness and empathy i care about the victim but you are prepared to stand behind or have the state impose the most incredible force to achieve the equity and the kindness that you think is just and that is the scary thing about this ideology so it has permeated deep into our psychology. And people I know who are perfectly nice people have been, even I, I've caught myself doing it. Mm. I, I'll look at a, a picture. I, I'll go to a website of a company I'm looking at, startup or whatever. And I look at their group photo on their website. And I'm like, look at all these white men. And I'm like, what? That is the thought of an idiot. you know. And, and that thought has now been planted in my head because of this discourse that we've taken on. So it's not a discourse about achievement, about bringing up the people who are struggling, regardless of, of color. It's not about merit. It's not about all the things that we were at least told were aspirational for the U.S. Now it's about, you know, how do we level everybody out? It's all about equality or equity, not even equality. It's, mm. it's equity. But what they don't tell you is, these people who are talking about equity, they've never built anything. They never built a company. They've never created anything great. They've never created objects of beauty or, or great art or, or done amazing things. They don't know how to create things. But when they talk about equalization, they're talking about cutting off the heads of the people who stand out. They're not talking about lifting up the people who are, who are drowning or struggling. And so, so that is the only lever that they're capable of executing on. And that's the scary thing that's going on right now. So this term weaponizing empathy is interesting because this is the reason why I think it's really hard to oppose this kind of stuff. Because I want to feel good about the way I treat other people. I want good things to happen for other people. I'm a good person, you know? I mean, like, and so what you end up in this situation is this is so powerful that either you absolutely believe that your empathy is, you know, rightly placed, or you're terrified to be seen as a non, you know, that you don't have empathy for people. And I think that what we have is this huge amount of talk going on all the time that is shaping the way people communicate, the way people think. And then all of a sudden it's completely taken over. And I don't see a way, like I've, I've talked in Thailand, try to talk to my friends about how this, this is coming to Thailand. It's already here. Yeah. It's, it's already a mind virus. Here. It travels. Yeah. It's already here. And we've seen it in many different things, including at one of the international schools where a friend of mine sends his child, they've asked to identify your pronouns. Yeah, which is just a very confusing thing for first of all for non-native English speakers to be asked about. You know, already it's hard enough to learn English and pronouns and everything, and yeah. now they're being asked that. It's just it's spreading, and 
what can stop it? What can stop it is morality. So the next episode I'm doing, I, I don't love this title, but it's effectively what I'm talking about. So what we've been talking about now is a form of demoralization where nothing is true. Nothing is like where you can look at something that's a crime and think that you're doing the good thing by tearing down a poster of someone who's been kidnapped and you think you're the good person. So that is a demoralized person. So what we need is a remoralization. And so that remoralization is the battle of our time because there is, you know, the former systems of morality have failed and they failed not for anything. It just, they've outlived their useful life. You know, like a lot of people just aren't ready to buy the story of Jesus or they're not ready to buy the story of, you know, whatever traditional faith that you grew up with or many people grew up with. So in that situation, you become unmoored. So what happens is empathy can be weaponized when it's not paired with morality. And so you can feel bad for someone. And, and it's also being paired with the appearance, and you alluded to this, which is it's not the actuality of being good. You're not actually helping somebody. You, you didn't get on a helicopter and fly into Gaza to fight the IDF if you think the Israelis are wrong. You didn't uh, go in to, you know, like to actually do anything useful. You are tearing down things and you're, you know, so so it's all veneers, you know, it's it's how you appear. And I, I think Elon Musk talked about this in a recent interview. I think he, the one he did with Andrew Ross Sorkin, you know, he talked about, he's like, I've done more by putting EVs into the marketplace about climate than anyone else has. But people are far more concerned with the appearance of goodness than the actuality and reality of goodness. And that is where we are. So you combine the lack of morality, weaponized empathy and appearances and the motivations that exist in social media and so on to present yourself a certain way. That is a deadly combination. And so what we desperately need is a remoralization. And so the reason I haven't put out the episode yet is I'm still thinking through the components of it. But the biggest component has to be through the school system. We have to take back schools and we have to and and families, too. And so you talked about family. Family is ground zero for morality, for education, for values, for success in life, for not becoming a drug addict, for not ending up in poverty. That is ground zero. But if you create a culture where you say, hey, any kind of family is just, just as good. Single mother, yeah, no problem. Single dad, raised by your grandma. It's all equally good. It's statistically false. It's statistically, I mean, it's logically false. If it, just having two incomes mathematically is better. You know, like, yes, mm -hmm. I guess you could make an argument if someone is an abusive, whatever person, maybe taking away the income is better than the abuse. But just on mathematical terms, you cannot argue you know, a two parent household is better, but that's part of the demoralization. And let me, let me just summarize this because this is the, the yeah. three pillars of society that I've been trying to tell in Thailand to be very careful about that. These pillars have held things together, you know, at least two of them very strongly, the destruction of religion, the destruction yeah. of the family and the destruction of education. Yeah. And if you can destroy those things, you know, one of the things that 
I have another podcast called the Deming Institute podcast where we talk a lot about education and what's happened in education. And, you know, education has deteriorated massively in the U.S. And the the math skills and all that, we just got the latest PISA scores out that show, you know, deterioration and further deterioration. And one of the points that I've made recently is that you can't deteriorate the education of the population and not expect to have consequences of that. And so family, religion, family, and education, it seems like there's a war on, but I just want to talk about one word. I was recently asked to go speak at a university here in Thailand, and they had their motto behind the screen where I was getting ready to speak, and they had a word called altruism, mm. and to teach young people to be altruistic. And this is one of the strangest things that I've ever come up with, which is I really don't think this is a real word because if you read the the definition of it, it's the belief in or practice of disinterested and selfless concern for the well-being of others. I just don't think that people operate that way, you know, because you have to ask the question as I asked the student, I said, let's talk about this word. Would you help someone if you knew it was going to seriously hurt you? You know, and I said, there's instinct. A grandma's walking across the street and a bus comes barreling down. In a second, you may instinctively jump to try to save her and not realize the risk that you're about to kill yourself in that process in saving her. So I can understand altruism from just a momentary instinct, but there's nobody out there that is taking care of others and hurting themselves the way, hurting themselves the way they feel they're doing it because it makes them feel better. And so I just yeah. think that that word's a funky word. <laughs> well, so I'll give you a framework that I use to think about what you just described, altruism. So so we, our loyalties lie in concentric circles, you know, so the strongest at the core is yourself, your own survival, right? Mm. Like even, even on the plane, they're like, put your mask on before you put it on for your child, right? So that's at the core is you not dying, right? Then- your interests expand to your immediate family. Then your interests expand maybe to your community. And then your interests expand maybe to your country or humanity at large, right? So there's sort of concentric circles and your bond and obligation to each subsequent circle is weaker and weaker, right? So your obligation to society at large is less than your obligation to your child. Mm -hmm. and so on. So everything within those concentric circles. Now, if you are a person that hops several circles, you're doing it for some reason. And the question is, what is that reason? So that's where we need to now psychoanalyze because sometimes, you know, there are tangible reasons, right? You, you do things for money. It's like, I'm going to concern myself with the interests of my corporation, my employer, above going home and playing with my four-year-old because they're paying me. So now you've prioritized a moral entity that pays you above your child, but in a way you're still taking care of your child, right? So so you've, you've made a trade-off, but it's a trade-off that on some level still benefits your family. But if you're saying, hey, I'm going to do this thing, this Mother Teresa-like thing for a stranger that I've never met, you're probably not doing that for a tangible reason. You're doing it for an intangible. 
and you're doing it for some sort of personal feeling of goodness for, you know, some sort of, it makes you feel a certain way. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Or some people are doing it for a tax write-off. I, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, so whatever reason you're doing it, if that person gets helped, great. But the expectation of prioritizing outer circles above inner circles is insanity. It is not the norm. It will never be the norm. And, you know, so altruism is a byproduct of having taken care of all of your most inner circles before you can occupy your time. That's why you see the richest people on earth become philanthropists. That's why you see Jeff Bezos' ex-wife is giving away billions because all of her needs are taken care of. Her family's taken care of. She, she can now operate in that outer circle. And Bill Gates can operate in that outer circle because, you know, and he can concern himself with malaria in the third world. That's not to say you shouldn't care about it, but you can't possibly care about it above the things in your immediate domain and circle. And let's talk about, you know, one of the things I was watching a video recently that probably everybody saw on, on Twitter, at least, where there was a lacrosse game or field hockey game of women and there was a trans woman playing and they hit the other woman really, you know, really hard, maybe knocked out yeah. her teeth or whatever. I can't remember. And you, the screams on the field were just horrific. And yeah. it just makes you think like, I haven't yet gotten married because I figured I'd wait until I grow up. But I thought to myself, <laughs> you know, what I would like for a wife is somebody that how, how strongly will she stand up for the family? And I think mm -hmm. that there's a lot of mothers and women are put in this very difficult position where, as you say, weaponization of empathy, where they want to give an equal yeah. opportunity to a trans person and they've forgotten about protecting their own kid. Yeah. And that this is, is the weaponization so that I was talking about. It causes you to reprioritize your empathy above reality and above your own obligation. So it it will force you to jump to an outer circle to the neglect of your own family. So if you have a daughter who's playing in, in a league against somebody who has had testosterone surging through their body for, you know, 97% of their life, and then all of a sudden is now identifies as, as female, and you're you're now at a distinct disadvantage and your child could get hurt. And yet you have been silenced by this ideology because it puts you at risk for public shaming or for losing your job or for whatever else. And so this is the dilemma of our time. Yeah, and so, and what, you know, to your point, the word that we're not using for that is cheating. So if I, you know, shot myself up with steroids and competed against people who didn't have steroids, you'd think I was a cheater. You think Mark McGuire or Barry Bonds or all these people who got thrown out of baseball or at least shamed and, and barred from, you know, Hall of Fame. You would think that way. But but if you do it through this new fangled way and you still cheat and you beat the hell out of a woman, a biological woman you're not allowed to speak and say something about you. And, and how do you, as a person who is ranked 500th as a male swimmer, enter now a female competition, become number one, and convince yourself that you did it fairly? How? 
How do you do that? So that is either a cheater or a psychopath, you know? And so, so- Which, which in, way, in my case, I'm less concerned about that particular person and their judgments. What I'm more concerned about is the people around them that are creating this environment, the way that they're reacting yes. to this, the weaponization. It's fascinating what's happening and it's very hard to resist because of the, I think in the old days we had lynchings and lynchings yeah. of course happened to, that's when a mob believes that they've identified the guilty party or the party that they're opposed to and then they kill them. And yeah. I would argue that now with the media, I've never been a big fan of Sean Hannity, but he always said something that kind of all of a sudden connected, which was the media mob. Mm. And the idea that the social media, the power of social media is, can be mob-like. If you can lose, you know, your job and other things, it's real destruction. And I wonder if we should start to have laws against media mobbing. I mean, it's a little bit difficult of a situation, but it definitely has a huge amount of impact on people these days. Well, so I think what's happened is people are trying to use that same marketplace to create a cost on the other side. And so I think, I don't think this is the idea, but the net effect will be that if it's just as costly to be on the left side of an issue as it has been to be on the right side of an issue. I'm talking political right, political mm -hmm. left. Then, you know, so you saw that with Bud Light, for example, right? You saw them, you know, kind of choose a transgender representative and everyone's like, uh, uh, this is not who we are as your customers. And so they rejected it and there was a financial cost to the company. And so, you know, I don't know that that's going to be done consistently, and I don't know that it's even the right way to go about it. I think the right way to be is to not have to, not that there shouldn't be consequences, but people shouldn't feel like they have to deny biological reality, or if they do sort of acknowledge biological reality, that their jobs could be at risk. Mm -hmm. And so I think those costs, that cost equation may be changing, but it's just the reality that, you know, there are people who are trying to impose institutional power. And when you do that, there's going to be pushback. It's, uh, I don't want to take much longer because we've gone for a while on some great topics. And there's one last one that I do want to get to. So we've talked about U.S. Civil War and kind of been through that a little bit. We've talked about weaponization of empathy and the destruction of family, religion, education, that I was talking about those three. Also, you know, one of the things that I've thought a lot about is where does this end? And I think that where it ends is when the US government is defunded, the federal government. And that defunding of the federal government only happens after all power, political and military, is exhausted and debt levels go up. Let's say right now we're at 34 trillion, let's say to 60 trillion, you know, something along those lines. It's not a big stretch to actually get to 80 trillion if you just follow the trajectory of Japan, that we could go from 34 trillion to 80 trillion dollars in debt. And then by that point, you know, the collapse of the currency, the further collapse of it, and the collapse of the system is kind of the only way I, I see this ending. So that's one thing I'm thinking a lot about is how, where does this end? And I think we're probably five to 10 years away from that. But the last thing I really want to talk about, and you, you can comment on what I've just said, but is 
in 2024, we're going to have a presidential election. And it's really hard to, you know, everybody is trying to figure out what's going to happen. You know, one of my questions I asked earlier is, can we even have a fair election in America? But I'm just curious kind of what your thoughts are on where does the presidential election take us in 2024? You know, uh, if things were to continue on the trajectory we're on right now, and it was Biden versus Trump, I think Trump will win. Now, surprisingly, RFK Jr. has a pretty strong third party position. I think if it's a combination of those two guys and he makes it on that stage, now there's a lot of institutional corruption between media and the political parties to keep out third party candidates and keep them off the ballot. So he may only make it onto 40 ballots. And if that's the case, he doesn't have a chance. But if he does, he only has to win a plurality. So it's only 34%. So 34% with this particular combination is possible. So that is, I, I don't give it a, you know, more than let's say a 10% chance, let's say, mm -hmm. because so much is stacked against it. So it's just to review Kennedy, he, has he officially left the Democrat party and is yes. he under another independent party officially now? No. No, but I think he's going to have to hook up with either the Green Party or with Libertarians, which I think is a lower probability, in order to get on every ballot. Because I don't think he has the the wherewithal or the organization to do it independently. And that's so for the listeners out there, the meaning is that if you're not on the ballot, you're not going to have any chance of winning the electoral seats of that particular state that will ultimately determine the outcome of the election. So any independent, I think, I think the independent parties have gotten better at trying to get the structure in place so that they're on the ballot for their candidate. So it seems like that he's got to do that. One of my ideas I had, I was thinking about is if it wasn't so late in the cycle, you know, it's, it's probably too late to get on the ballot, you know, in 50 states with a new party, but Kennedy should set up the new Democrat party. Well, yeah, I, I don't know that that's his motivation. You know, I think he hasn't expressed that kind of, it's been a very sort of a singular effort on his part. Mm. He hasn't really discussed, you know, created a we type of situation, which, you know, in his narrative. But what I was going to say is over the last few weeks, I think there's a actually a, a greater than 50% chance that it will not be Joe Biden on that stage debating Trump, because the Democratic National Committee has been auditioning Gavin Newsom over the past few weeks or maybe months. So they had him fly to China to represent the U.S. with Xi. They had Xi come to the U.S., to California, again, to meet with Newsom. They allowed Newsom to debate DeSantis on Fox News. Remember, Newsom is a company man. He only does what the Democratic Party allows him to do. He is not a rebel of any kind. He is a corporate, paid-for, Democratic operative of the most stereotypical kind. And so if he is doing these things, it is because he is sanctioned to do those things. And so I think there's a greater than 50%, you know, I could be wrong, of course, but given the deterioration in Biden's condition and the fact that they're running this audition with Newsom, they are essentially testing the waters. But 
the risk, of course, and I don't know if people will pick up on this or the Republicans will capitalize on this, is as undemocratic as a Democratic Party is, they have super delegates that can outvote regular delegates. You know, so whoever the people vote for, they have a bunch of rich donors that could essentially veto their selection and put a different candidate in. The fact that they swapped in decided on Biden and forced all the other candidates out just so Bernie didn't win last time during the 2020 cycle. If all those undemocratic markers didn't bother people before, can you imagine what will happen? Or maybe people are okay with this. If they just swap in without an electoral process, swap in a new guy, who no one really selected and there were no, you know, primaries to choose Gavin Newsom and okay, they so swap him out. Let's just stop there for a second. So the point that you're making is that the ultimate situation is going to be before we get to the November election is that the Democrat Party is going to have to do something about Biden because of deterioration in mental capacity and the idea of him getting in for yeah. another four years isn't, isn't going to work. And so they're going to have to come up with a methodology to get his replacement in. So Gavin Newsom seems to be auditioning, as you've said. Some people yeah. say, oh, what about Hillary Clinton? Some people say, oh, what about Michelle Obama? You know, I'm, yeah. I'm just curious if you had to kind of look at where the Democrat Party, I, I think it's it makes sense that the Democrat Party's got to have some contingency plans because, you know. Yeah, I, I think they've they've probably been pitching Michelle Obama for the last two cycles, at least. It's just that I don't think, you know, look, she's got a good life. They've collected a lot of money after Obama left office. And I don't know that she wants to take on the headache. And and I think their their pitch, if I had to guess, and I don't have any inside information, is, listen, we'll do all the work for you. We'll take care of everything. You just go out there, make the speeches, do the whatever. Yeah, it's a coronation. Exactly. And so so I think the pitch is you will have an easy life. You do the, you know, be the front woman for the operation and we'll take care of all the stuff, which is essentially what they're doing with Biden. Biden yeah. barely knows where he is. So yeah. they're running all this stuff. So the question is, does she want the headache? Does she want the exposure? Does she want to confront Trump? And I don't know. It's hard to say. She hasn't shown any specific inclination to do it, yeah. but- and what it's about possible. Hillary? Is there a chance that they say, well, this is Hillary's opportunity. She's a political operative. We, you know, Michelle Obama's an un unknown quantity could get destroyed, you know, intersectionality wise. She's a very good candidate, but she could get destroyed with no real experience. Whereas Hillary's got experience. Is she just, is it too late for her or I think there... it's yeah I think it might be a little bit late I think there's definitely a part of her I mean she's out speaking and and she's she's in the public eye constantly so she's keeping that fire or mm. burning at least in the in the background so but if, if I had to assign probabilities right now I would say Newsom 50 percent chance Biden maybe 35 to 40 percent chance and then Michelle Obama, you know, five to 10 and Hillary, maybe up to 5% chance. Mm. So, so it's not so, impossible, but that would be my current weighting that might change depending on how things play out. So that's the Democrat side. Now let's look at, first of all, one of the things about Kennedy is that it just seems like he's, he's gone against everything that the Democrat party believes in these days, that it just seems very unlikely that many Democrats would switch their vote to Kennedy. 
So therefore, he's going to pull. Yeah, he's going to pull a lot from Trump. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine he's going to hurt Trump unbalanced more than he hurts the Democrats. So from the Republican Party perspective or Trump Party perspective, that's a big threat that even if Biden was the candidate that went up, Kennedy could really, really pull a huge amount of votes away from Republican voters. Yeah, that's why they're going to try very hard to keep him off ballots. And that's why he really has no choice but to hook up with the party to get on all 50 state ballots. So really, so both that's the Democrat the, and the Republican Party probably just don't want this. Right. No, they're they're built for a duopoly. They're not built for competition. So, Third parties have failed multiple times. So let's now look at Trump for a second, because on the one hand, if you're a somewhat of a Trump supporter, you could look at the way situation has gone. You could say by the time Biden is done with his time in office, you could have had 12 million illegal immigrants ultimately coming into America. They may eventually be given asylum for this or that, but they're not necessarily going through the process of asylum in a traditional way. So you could have this, you know, huge influx that's happened. Then if I look at the situation last time, if we think about Sam Harris as a perfect stereotypical example of the elite basically saying anything that has to be done to stop Trump must be done. Mm. And they stated that, you know, Time Magazine article before the election, or maybe it was after the election, I can't remember. I'll have to go back and look at that. But, you know, stating that every single power force that they could get together in society in any way was brought together to resist Trump in 2020. Now, they've even now added on the legal yeah. The, the use of the of the federal government and, and the government to try to yeah. stop him. If you think about people who are running Google and other organizations, they're no less adamant that we've got to stop Trump at any means necessary. So how do you view the Republican side of this election? Where do we end up in November? Well, Republicans won't say this. They don't want Trump either. You know, they're a corporate party and they are beholden to donors that want to control whoever is in office. So if the Republicans had the same kinds of powers as the Democrats in terms of superdelegates, we'd be talking about maybe Jeb Bush's second term right now. You know, so they're not interested in Trump. Trump is not a figure you can control. He's a wild card. And a wild card is not something that the corporate and elite classes want, Republican or Democrat. They have way more in common with each other in terms of class. And this is one of the things that, you know, we talked about wokeism earlier. One of the things it does by dividing us into these fragmented groups, it causes us not to see the bigger issues of class and elitism that are keeping us fighting. And so no, that's not to say Trump is a good candidate. He's not, he's a narcissist, he's an egotist, but Trump is something, you know, so if we're talking about a, a matchup of Trump versus Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom is a liar. He is a compulsive liar and Trump is a bullshitter. 
And I'll take a bullshitter over a liar any day because a bullshitter is trying to convince you to buy his bullshit, right? He's, he's a salesman. He's trying to sell you on something. Liar already did the crime. He's just covering it up. And so, so that's why, you know, in that battle, I'll, I'll pick, I'll pick the bullshitter, but uh, and that's sorry, what I want to vote for. Just, just to stop there for a second, a supporter of Gavin Newsom would probably say just the opposite, right? That Trump is the liar and Gavin Newsom yeah. is a bullshitter. I'm not it, a supporter of either. I would actually yeah. probably vote for uh, RFK. Yeah. yeah. What would be the the number one thing that you would say? I mean, I I just don't know anything about Gavin Newsom, but like, what's his number one a weakness? If he was in a debate, you know, that could be attacked. Is, besides poop on is, the sidewalks, he is extremely formidable in the sense that he has, from what I've seen, he has no moral compass. I mean, this is a guy who locked a bunch of people down in his state and then was out in French laundry restaurant with all his buddies while everyone else was, was locked down. And he just to your face will lie about it and just tell you that the, he, even now he talks about how California was the freest state during COVID and they did everything right, even though they had a mass migration out of the state because of it. So, and he will tell you these things to your face straight with, and, and say it as if he believes it. And then, you know, he'll evade questions. He's a very, it's almost like he was made in a lab. He's very impressive as an entity. I call him the Patrick Bateman of politics. You remember the American Psycho? <laughs> so, so he's he's that guy. He's that guy, but as a politician. So he is he's formidable. I've heard him talk mm. on podcast. I heard him on a podcast describe how he grew up in this poor household, how his mother was scrappy, whatever. Then I found out his Dad was the chief lawyer for the Getty family. He grew up rich. He's a trust fund kid. And he made it sound on this podcast like he grew up super poor and, and struggled with a single mom. School it hard is, is, He is pathological. And that is exactly what makes him so scary because he is unbound by truth. And this is why, and, and not that Trump is bound by truth, but Trump is sort of, a, he's more of a performance than he is a person. And so, yeah. you know, okay. it, so, yeah. So, so the question now is, okay, let's, it's November election day. Yeah. Who's on the ballot from the Republican side? It's going to be Trump. I mean, even if he's in prison, it's going to be Trump because, you know, like he's got a cult of personality that defies party logic and party principles because if you if you really wanted to know what corporate republicans believe look at nikki haley's platforms and nikki haley's yeah. statements she is the embodiment of what the corporate right wants so she is the prototypical george w bush republican so uh, so that's violence. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's uh, like, she's like more wars, more, you know, yeah. more Never money saw through. a war she didn't like. No, uh, no, yeah, exactly. Okay, so exactly. so now let's just now envision that we've got Gavin Newsom up against Donald Trump. And now let's imagine Kennedy not, not mm -hmm. on the ballot for a minute. And let's imagine that every tool available is being used to get Trump voters to not vote for yeah. Trump and to get the electoral college to not vote for Trump. Every tool, more than in the past. And of course, we have people on the Democrat side that are like, 
I don't care whether Gavin Newsom is a liar or a bullshitter. I'm Democrat and I'm voting for right. So right. forget about third party for a minute. I don't even see a way that Trump can win in that case, even if more and more people feel like they should support him. The powers to control the election are pretty enormous through media, through social media, through manipulation of content that you're receiving and stuff like that. So if we have that showdown, what's the end result based upon your opinion right now? I would be less worried about the social media aspect this time around than the first time around in 2016, because at this point, Trump is a known entity. You know, you know, you know what you're getting. There's no, there's no new voter sitting on the fence going, I don't know. I mean, I heard of this guy, but I'm not so sure if he could do the job, you know, like there's, there's not a lot of people on the fence. You know, there's people who hate him. There's people who love him. And there's, and there's some people who maybe will hold their nose and vote for him. And some people who, you know, whatever will say it out. So, so those lines have already been drawn. So I think the impact of social media to do that is much less. You can't smear before. this man. Yeah. I mean, you can't smear a guy <laughs> who's up on multiple charges right now yeah. in multiple States for whether they're trumped okay. up. So, so, so controlling the narrative around him is harder now. Yeah. It's okay. irrelevant. It's not that it's harder, it's just irrelevant because it's a known quantity. So, so, then so how does the vote go then? So I think where the sort of manipulation has to happen is in the physical, the ballot process and the means by which, you know, things are counted. And so, and look, I'm not an election conspiracist. I just, you know, there, there've been some anomalies that have popped up and some successful, you know, miscounts or, or at least lawsuits or things that are brought. The vast majority have not been proven successful, but I'm not... The other thing that happened before the last election during COVID was massively we changed from in-person voting to mail-in votes. And that just opens the possibility of, you know, just messing with the it's, vote count. It's almost laughable when you come from a country like Thailand where, you know, nobody ever trusted the government anyway. So, you know, you you go down and you you do a physical, you know, you just go down yeah. to your district and there's an office there and you you walk in and you submit your vote and you bring your ID. So the question, I guess, is has the Republican Party done enough to combat, you know, did they really realize, I mean, the Republican Party, both parties are not very impressive to me. No. I'm not necessarily convinced that the Republican Party has done enough to prepare for this election and therefore they're going to be outmaneuvered even if there was a large amount of people that said, oh, I'm going to vote for Trump, you know, versus Newsom. And that's where I'm finding it hard to understand whether Trump's going to would win or not if it was Trump Newsom showdown. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think, you know, that to me will be the weak point, which is how will they use the tools of the mobilization tools, you know, because that's really the difference. And Republicans are just aren't great at mobilizing. You know, they, mm. they don't have a lot of people who naturally volunteer for political causes. They're not cause kind of people. They're people who go and, you know, like to try to make money somewhere, you know, like they're, they're not driven by public office. And the people who are in public office are oftentimes are super corrupt or narcissists that need that that attention. So I don't have a high opinion of either party, but no, they're, they, they don't have good ground game. And I think the Democrats have, you know, I think most corporations, I think, are 94% donors to the Democratic Party. So almost every corporation is 
wildly left-leaning. And that's, if, so that's why I just see, and you talked about the weaponization of empathy and you talked about, you know, the, the administrative state seems to be, you know, much more empathetic and Democrat leaning. You've got just so many forces in favor of Democrat that it just seems very hard to, I, I find it hard to figure out what's the pathway if the Republicans, you know, really, really wanted to win. Well, there's only, you know, the way our countries divide, talk about civil wars, our country only has 13 states that matter in the election. You know, we started with 13 colonies and we have essentially 13 colonies now. And those 13 where, states matter because they have a large amount of electoral votes no, in the electoral college because, or because what? There's, no, because they're swing states. Okay. So, yeah. so only, so there's like six really strong swing states. And then there are like 13 that could potentially be in play in total. So like so we saw like Wisconsin or uh, Michigan or Ohio or Pennsylvania that swung. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Those are big high electoral vote states that can swing either way. Even Florida was a swing state for a long time. Maybe now it's more right. Mm. But you're not going to have a very easy time sort of, you're not going to even canvas or or run in New York or California. You know mm. they're going to go to the Democrats. So you're not even going to bother. You're not going to campaign in those states. But you raise money from those states to go influence the swing states. So I think really the good thing, if you're a Republican, your scope can be limited to those areas where you have to be extra diligent about potential voter fraud. You know, and if you're a Democrat, then, you know, listen, the thing you have to wrestle with is how important is principle to you? And I don't think principles are very important because as your example of Sam Harris goes, I think people view Trump as an existential threat to democracy, people on the left. And so they can and will justify almost anything to not put him into office. Yeah. So that's where I think the final you know, conclusion that I'm coming to is that Trump's not going to be the next president. And we haven't really factored in the JFK, you know, RFK Jr. coming in and that that's going to take away from Trump vote, not the Democrat vote. And yeah. now you could say that the Electoral College may decide to attribute the Kennedy vote to Trump. You know, and vote. I don't know. In some well, like states, it wouldn't they be done. It, yeah, it probably wouldn't be done at the electoral college level. It would be done at the individual state levels that select electors, because a, a number of states have already subdivided their electors, where they allocate them proportionally based on popular vote. So before it was winner take all. So if you win the state, you win all of the electoral votes, but that's not the case anymore. So now there are certain states that allocate proportionally. Based upon the- And more vote. might do that. Yeah. And more might do that just to, to splinter the, uh, if they think it's going to go in, in the other direction, they have a, a legislature that permits doing something like that. So speaking of the future, where do we end up? A year from now, who's our president? Now, we started this whole podcast where you say, I, I'm really not the person to help you with your marketing budget over a one-year time frame, But I do think that we've had a good discussion on it. And I'm curious, kind of, after all that discussion, where do you think it goes? Well, if I had to place a bet now, I would still say Trump. But 
by a, a hair. It'll be yeah. a hell of a fight. 51% chance is wow. where I would put it. Okay. We've covered so many different topics and, you know, I've been wanting to get you back to talk about, it. I know there's so many other things that you talk about. I mean, I've kind of led this discussion into the direction that, that I'm thinking about, but I, I want to thank you for going that direction. And I'm, I certainly hope that we can get you back on. And I promise that I'm going to have you talk about the things that are really hot in your mind. But so before we end, I just want to mention for the listeners out there to follow Steve on Idea Factory. That's Idea F-A-K-T-O-R-Y on Twitter and also on his website, Name the Same. And I'll have or all Steve of those- You could go to yeah. SteveFactor.com. All the content stuff is tends to yeah. be there. Yeah. And I'll have all that in the show notes so you can just click on that. But I want to leave you with the final words based upon, you know, we've been talking about a lot of different things and I know you've got a lot of things in your head. What would be the final words of what you want to leave the audience thinking about? Well, I think that the thing that concerns me most is principle. And principle, just like morality, is unfortunately a luxury good. When you don't have things, you aren't too worried about being that moral. You know, you will steal to get food for your child, for example, to use an extreme situation. We, for the most part in this country, are not at that point. Most people have enough. Maybe not what they feel they should have. Maybe they feel that there are injustices in the world, and there absolutely are. But we are at a point where we can afford morality and we can afford principle. And we're not buying either. (laughs) And so what I would like to see more of is people acting in a principled way because even if you win, but you do it without principle, you will have lost because those same unprincipled methods will come back to haunt you. Just like with free speech, you know, you think you can shut down the people you don't like, but eventually that will come back to you. You will be shut down as well. So that means fighting for the things that you oppose. And so I encourage people to think about well, what do you believe in? What do you think a moral person is? What do you think a principled person is? What do you think an American is? What do you think is right and wrong? And does it apply equally to the people you hate as to the people that you love? So really, that that's what I want people to think about, because I think that's the crisis of our time. Fantastic. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you can go to episode 345 to hear Steve's story of his worst investment ever. And Steve, I just want to thank you for a great discussion on varied topics. I didn't tell you what we were going to talk about, and I threw a lot of things at you, but you uh, you survived very, very well. So I appreciate that. And Likewise, li- I enjoyed it. Yeah. So for the listeners out there and the viewers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on The Upside.